what was going on with the crazy time lapse between yeah. them? Yeah, I mean, like, he was like, I, I mean, all the stuff I've read them? says that this is a mistake, but it's so bizarre. I don't know if it's the kind of mistake that isn't really a mistake that Milton, you know, mentioned that guy on his farmer went down to the cave of Mammon. It isn't really a mistake because it's meaningful. But I don't get it. What is the meaningfulness between the lapse of the five days? Well, so what? I mean, there's there are plenty of time lapses in Spencer that don't make sense, and what we can. The real question is, is he aware of that? And, well, there are two questions you can ask about, about temporal um, mess-ups in, in um, really in any work of literature, but in something as complex as Spencer, the questions are live. So one question that you can ask <coughs> is, is he aware of it himself? And if he's aware of it, um, does he want us to be aware of it? And uh, those, those really are two different questions. So. The question of time passing, there is there's a, a concept you can have of narrative time, where the way narrative time works is the only real thing that matters is that things happen one after another. And as far as keeping track of what's going on through some kind of separate um, measurement of time, through some separate um, uh, uh, standard of comparison is that's true in real life um, but it's not true in narrative and it's frequently the case that it's not true in narrative you know an, an example that um, you can give that I frequently give is what happens in TV shows with long story arcs so that you know even if you take something like 30 rock um, Jack Donahue will talk about how his mother was had been visiting him two days ago and um, two days ago means two episodes ago. That is, it's something that happened a couple of episodes ago and his mother is visiting him and, um, and it was terrible for him. Um, but if it's the Christmas show of 30 Rock, it'll be Christmas when he complains about his mother's visit, even though his mother's visit may have taken place on Thanksgiving. And um, the point is that Thanksgiving show might have been two shows earlier than the Christmas show because it's reruns and, very, and Christmas specials time. And so two days means two shows, even though it might also mean a month. And that's just standard on, on um, TV shows with story arcs of any sort. You know, 30 Rock doesn't have much of a story arc, but it has a story arc. Um, and that's standard on story arcs of any shows, is that when we think narratively, we think not about how long ago something happened, but what happened last. We think of things, they're compressed in terms of important incidents, um, rather than in terms of how much time passes um, between those important incidents. And Spencer, he might just be doing that. Um, there are other problems, though, with book three, as far as its as far as its narrative arc goes. Um, this is something we'll talk about when we get to the end of it. But the main problem is, um, well, no, let me let me let me ask this as a question: What? Where are you seeing inconsistencies in book three? Be, be explicit. Where are you seeing inconsistencies in book three? The name's the wrong night. I have to look. Guy yeah. on red yeah. Right. right. Yeah. So that's that's a that's a pure error. Right. Let's just say that that's a pure error, um, and it's interesting to see a pure error. It's also interesting to see when pure errors aren't caught, 
That is to say that it's a mistake in the first edition of the Fairy Queen, it's a mistake in the second edition of the Fairy Queen. Um, and that tells you a little bit even about how Spencer might be thinking of um, the Fairy Queen, which is that he's paying attention to the knight that matters. Mm. And the other knight who doesn't matter um, is just some other knight. And um, that tells you something, you know, that that's... Uh, I actually, I actually wrote something once about um, the gifts that errors give you from works of literature from movies, um, which is that they actually tell you... Um, what you shouldn't be paying attention to. Well, not only what you shouldn't be paying attention to, but they tell you something about the thought process of the writer. Mm-hmm. Um, they tell you not only what you're supposed to be paying attention to, which is fine, or what the writer wants you to be paying attention to, but what the writer himself, in this case, um, is not regarding as that important. So people who are very into understanding and making consistent the Spencerian allegory on every level, what Spencer is basically saying is it's some other knight. The knight that I'm interested in now is Britomart, the knight of chastity. And as for who that other knight is, whether it's Guyon or Red Cross, I'm not interested at that moment, whether it's holiness or temperance um, that are at issue there. That's, I'm not thinking about holiness and temperance at that moment. Um, I am thinking only of what is there for Britomart. Remember we talked about um, allegory as the in itself, a character in herself or in himself, versus a character who's there for another. Um, Who's the most obvious character in book three who is for another? Who only exists... Okay, let me... I'll ask this in a simpler way, just one second. Um, In book one, Archimago produces um, a fake Una and some other fake spirits. And he does that for whom? For Red Cross, right. So Archimago is a, is a person who produces, um, who produces artificial characters for Red Cross. Um, those artificial characters, they, just, they never do anything. They're just there for their, for their brief um, appearance to Red Cross, for his brief hallucination or, or um, mistake, and then they disappear. Um, what corresponds, or Ben, what were you going to say? I mean, uh, I only just finished book four, so... Book maybe, what? Canto four. Canto four, yeah. I was uh, going to say, dude. <laughs> um, so I feel like I, I should have read The Whole Fairy Queen twice by now. I mean, yeah. you know, I, I felt like that's where I was supposed to be. Yeah, that's fine. So, what's your... Um, but, uh, I feel like maybe, um, Merlin, unless he comes back later, seems to exist only so that Brimard can go on his course. Okay, so Merlin is there to... Well, Merlin's doing a bunch of things. He's prophesying the future. Um, he breaks off his prophecy in horror, which is, um, interesting. But yet the end is not. And then he stopped as though he saw mm. something dreadful. Um, he's there to tell... Britomart um, about Artigal. Um So, yeah, he's, he's a magician. In a way, he is the good version of Archimago, the um, evil magician. Merlin is the good magician. Um, Merlin is also going to um, eventually be imprisoned um, forever, and there's some hint of that already. You're supposed to know a little bit, um, or Spencer is presuming that you know, which you guys do. Um, something about Arthurian stories. This should not be your introduction to... You shouldn't have said, oh, cool, I didn't know. Prince Arthur, that's cool. I wish other people had written about him. Um, 
you're supposed to know. Um, the name's Arthur and Merlin, and, and um, well, Guinevere not, but um, Lancelot not, but still, you're supposed to have a vague sense of them. At least the Lady of the Lake turned up somewhere. Yeah, the Lady of the Lake um, turns up um, uh, in connection with Merlin. Um, okay, so Merlin is there um, as a source of information. He may as well be a book um, the way um, uh, we saw in book two. Um, uh, Julian first. Uh, yeah, there's also the, um, the, the witch who creates... Uh, Creates an image of Florimel for her son. Yes. Um, who lusts for Florimel. Um, right. So there's somebody who responds to her. Okay, so the false Florimel. It's, mm. it's not so much the. It, it, yeah, she corresponds to Archimago, except she's not. Mm. She's only trying to make her son happy. She's not. Hans Clodhopper. <laughs> she's not going around um, trying to defeat this, the, the forces of goodness and virtue. She's trying to make her son happy. Um, good. Yeah, I think the false Florimel is the most obvious character there for another. But unlike those figures in um, book one, she becomes a character. Um, she's not only um, someone who is who is produced for a minute as a as a um, a, a, a figment for the churl. Um, she becomes a character, not a major character, but not a nothing character either on her own. Um, John. Um, also, we've only gotten through Kansas Six. Yeah, that's but, fine. Um, we're not. We're only. We're not going to get that well, far today. I, I realize because uh, I think I don't know what happens after that. But Belle Phoebe seems to be something of a poor character because she's only there to take care of Timius and for right. him to sort of uh, be in love with her. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, Belle Phoebe is going to come back, and if you got to Kansas Six, then you know that um, Belle Phoebe and Amaret are are linked in a very interesting way. Um, Belphoebe, um, Spencer himself says in the proem, you may have forgotten this now, um, but that Belphoebe is one image of Queen Elizabeth. Um, that is, she is, uh, Diana the Huntress is the mythological connection um, to make with her. Um, Phoebe is another name for Diana, as the goddess of the moon. Um, Phoebe means moon. Um, is one of the moons of Mars named Phoebus? Is that? Yes. Uh, no, that's Phobos and Deimos. Yeah, but Fear it's not Phobos. Oh, is it? Oh, okay. So I was, I, I got my Robert Heinlein wrong. Um, okay, so so scratch that. Um, but at any rate, she is associated with the chaste huntress and with the moon. But Arthur Squire um, suddenly becomes a character himself of his own. That is to say that look, we've seen the dwarf. We've seen the Palmer. Um, we've seen Glauke, who is um, the equivalent for Britomart um, in an odd way of the dwarf and the Palmer. Um, and we've seen um, Timius, but Timius is, um, suddenly has his own life. Um, he's certainly not there just for Arthur. It may be that he ends up not being for Arthur at all. Um, there's a way in which he becomes a much more central character. He's not central the way Bredemart is, but he becomes a much more important character on, him, on his own than Arthur ever becomes. Um, Arthur, Arthur, in a way, turns out to be for others. Um, they're all supposed to be for him. That is, they're all supposed to represent aspects of Arthur, his holiness, his temperance, his chastity. Um, we're going to find out his friendship, but friendship is going to complicate things still further. His justice, his courtesy. Um, but 
it turns, it starts looking like, no, Arthur actually, he comes in, he's the cavalry, he saves the day, until he stops saving the day. Because that's what, that was what was interesting to me about Timius, is that he was the one who went after the bad guys. Yes. Right. Chasing after the pretty lady, and it's the yeah. squire that then does the knightly job. And right. Yeah, and do you remember what the Spenserian narrator says about that? It's, it's actually a pretty hilarious moment. It really is um, one of the sources of Monty Python. Um, is No, I mean, literally it is. It's uh, which one of them, I never remember which one, um, one of the Terrys uh, is a, wrote a book on Chaucer. And um, did you guys not know this? You should. I thought you would know this better than I. One of them actually has a degree in, um, in Middle um, English... In middle English English literature and wrote a fairly well-received book on Chaucer and, um, and knows all about Chaucer and Spencer um, and uh, he has a PhD um, might be Terry Jones but I'm not sure which one now um, and uh, the reason Monty Python is so good and stuff like The Life of Brian and so on is that they actually they, they have the scholarship behind them um, for the jokes that they're making and um, and Monty Python and the Holy Grail, they have the scholarship behind it. That's Monty Python's Arthurian movie. Um, but the idea that, oh, look, there's Florimel, and there's a foster chasing Florimel, and what does Arthur decide to do when they split? Chase Florimel. Chase the beautiful woman. Arthur, who's supposed to be um, pure and committed <clears throat> to his dream of Gloriana, is instead chasing the beautiful woman, um, who then just runs away and runs away and runs away for the rest of the book? Um, he's chasing, you know, with her with her head looking over her shoulder. That's almost comic as well. But he's chasing the beautiful woman. And what Spencer says, or the narrator says, we'll call the narrator Spencer. Um, I think there's no harm in doing that, um, except when the narrator is sometimes more priggish than Spencer is obviously being. Um, but what Spencer says is, Timius wasn't interested in chasing a skirt. Timius wasn't interested in, um, in chasing a woman just because he was beautiful. He was interested in punishing the foster who was trying to rape her. So suddenly you have Arthur. And who else? Guyon. Guyon. Chasing after Florimel. Each of them trying to be, you know, trying to get her um, um, respect and um, and gratitude, and then Spencer himself says, Timius wasn't interested in um, in getting some some uh, pleasure from the gratitude of a beautiful woman. He was interested in going after this rapist, and so Timius is clearly in the right, and Arthur and Guyon are the ones who are doing something that you would never have expected them to do. If you were trying to predict what was going to happen, you would have it go. Um, more or less in the other way. That is, uh, but Florimel was running, and um, maybe even Britomart would go after her, um, as as you will see, um, something like that eventually happens. Um, I'm trying to think if, if we should get in, into that now. Um, I'll just say 
that um, the night of book three was not supposed to be Britta Mart, according to the story. That is, it's not that Spencer said, oh, I'm not going to do, uh, I don't want Britta Mart to be the night. Oh, my goodness, she is. But even in the letter to Raleigh and then in book three, um, do people remember who the night is supposed to be? Scudamore um, is, is, was supposed to and tried to undertake the quest of book three. Um, does anyone know what the quest in book three is? Britomart's quest, obviously, is to find Artigal. Um, but does anyone know what the official fairy queen court of Gloriana quest of book three is supposed to be? Julian? Wasn't it to go and to, to rescue Amrit from Busserine? Busserine, yes. Busserine uh, from, uh, uh, from the house of Busserine. Yes. Yeah. Um, through the, the, the ring of fire around the castle. And, right. And the really weird mask and Cupid and so on. Yeah, did you get? Did you finish it? Uh, Is that what you're saying? Part of that. Yeah, but I mean, like, I, I was also I wanted to bring that up as another another uh, um, uh, kind of sorcerer uh, yeah. image creation. Right. Where we have uh, Busserine creating uh, creating this, I guess, this fake mask for 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 uh, whom? For, yeah, good question. Uh, for maybe perhaps Britomart to go through. But he doesn't know Britomart is there. Right. So the question is, that's, I mean, when, when you get to the end, the mass, the, what, what's the equivalent of the Bower of Bliss and the fight with the dragon is Britomart saving Amaret um, from the House of Buserine. And um, that's the task that Scudamore, who was supposed to be the Knight of Book Three, fails at. So Britomart has to do something that the official knight fails to do. Um, and that's, again, you start seeing vast differences between the structure of book three versus the structure of the first two books. And, um, but that's something that we'll get to. Ben? Um, did these books like, all come out at once? Books one through three came out at once. What you'll see is book three ends happily, um, but then when he published... So first he published books one, one through three in one volume. Then, seven years later, he published books one through six um, as, a, as a single book. And he changes the end of book three so that it will now go on into book four. So in book three, there's a happy ending. In book four, um, in the second edition, the happy ending is changed into no, not yet. Um, there was supposed to be a reunion. I don't want to give you too many spoilers. Um, but there's supposed to be a reunion at the end of book three. Um, and at the end of book three, in the first version, there is that reunion. And it's all happy, the end. Um, wait for the next three. But in, um, when it's reprinted, um, he changes the last few verses of book three so that um, the person who's waiting for the reunion um, gives up and disappears. And now there has now there's more stuff, and actually a lot more stuff goes on um, after that person disappears. So there's a kind of fake ending that Spencer just tacked on to make book three seem satisfying. In it's very 1589. Sad it was very beautiful. The lightly he clipped her. Yeah, yeah, it is beautiful, and you can have both. It's a nice thing. It's 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 um, it's 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 uh, you're allowed both. You really are, and that's mm. a good thing. Um, but. Okay, so notice that what we've been talking about a little bit now is um, ways that plot and allegory are um, really separating from each other. 
and notice that it's almost as though you just get a whole lot of allegorical energy, um, but the allegorical energy is now being recruited and shanghaied by plot, so that it's just, um, I think the best way to understand what's happening in book three is that in the first two books, um, Spencer produces um, a structure of allegory which allows for an enormous amount of creative energy because you need creative energy for allegory to work. That is, um, the good thing about writing an allegory, it, it, it's the, the difference between an allegory, let's say in a realist novel, if any of you has ever tried to write fiction, um, you'll probably know, um, this is something Kafka wrote about all the time, but you'll probably know that it's a real pain to have something new happen in a fiction, unless you're writing fantasy fiction. But if you're writing realistic fiction, it's a real pain to get something new to happen. Like you have to justify where did this character come from, why is an insurance broker, someone who might have some cyanide in his desk drawer, um, how can I make that seem plausible without actually making it turn out that the insurance broker you know, had a past as a serial killer in Iraq and was collecting cyanide from um, from the Iraqi, you know, these are all things that, like Mad Men is a good example of. Um, that is that you have a kind of boring Madison Avenue context, and then you have to keep getting more and more, giving more and more elaborate backstories um, to uh, the characters in Mad Men, and they become kind, kind of um, um, extravagant. But realism and extravagance go against each other. The thing about allegory is extravagance is built in from the start. Extravagance is just fine because whatever you need, you can get um, whatever you need for the moral, you know, that selfishness is bad. If you want to show that selfishness is bad, um, you can have the house of selfishness can be round the next corner. And the house of selfishness can be in the same world that you might also find the cave of mammon and the pit of sports betting. Um, all those things you can put on the same level. So allegory is just, by its nature, you plausibility is way, way down on the list of things that matter for allegory. Um, you, can, you can put anything you want into an allegorical world. Um, it's as it, it will allow for as much flexibility and vividness and inconsistency as a dream world. Um, and in fact, thinking about the Fairy Queen as Spencer's version of the interpretation of dreams, Freud's greatest book, um, is a really good way to think about the Fairy Queen. The, the, the land of fairy, the elfin land, um, is a dream world where anything can happen at any moment. And what justifies that is that there's a moral meaning um, which all these things find ways of representing. So that's, that's, now I'm not saying anything controversial. I think anyone would accept that that's true about Spencer or about any allegory. Um, you know, that if you need, um, if you need to have um, a flying Garuda come in and, com and, and say that he wants to offer his wings to another Garuda, you can do that um, because it's an allegory. Um, you, you don't need to explain it at all. Um, 
Having done that, however, having established that in the first book or two of The Fairy Queen, what starts happening in book three is that Spencer has now established a world where anything can happen. Whatever he wants to happen can happen. Um, and, any, and any reader will accept that anything can happen. Um, that's not such an easy thing to establish. Allegory lets him establish that. Um, but that's generally not, a, not such an easy thing to establish. Not to recur to Buffy or anything, but it's always creaky when Buffy introduces some new supernatural um, mode in, um, in some episode. You know, they have to have story meetings and decide, okay, how are we going to get Gloria in, or how are we going to get Buffy to have a sister named Dawn? Um, and all those things require a whole lot of explanation. Um, you know, Buffy is not as wild as Spencer, but Buffy goes wild. But it takes a while to justify any new wild aspect in Buffy. Um, and, it do and that's because Buffy is realistic compared to Spencer. Um, and it's what makes realism just not matter in Spencer is that it's allegorical. But once Spencer has established that, then he can do whatever he wants. And that's what he starts doing in book three. So he's done a lot of establishing the first two books, and now in book three he does whatever he wants. So we can see Arthur and Guyon chasing Florimel. Why? Because Spencer actually wants a story about Timius and Belphoebe. Um, and why does he want that story? Um, I mean, these are all questions to ask yourself, but partly because he wants um, the, the twinship of Belphoebe and Amoret. Um, to allow him to talk about the Garden of Adonis. And it's worth noticing how much the Garden of Adonis is like the Bower of Bliss, and yet the Garden of Adonis is the greatest place ever. Um, it's the Spencerian equivalent right in the middle of the Fairy Queen, and right in the middle of Book 3 of the Fairy Queen. It's the Spencerian equivalent of the Garden of Eden. Um, it's something, as you will see, that Milton will think about when he's describing the Garden of Eden in Paradise Lost. The Garden of Adonis in Spencer is behind um, a lot of his descriptions of the Garden of Eden in Paradise Lost. Um, so there are all sorts of issues like that, and, and what you certainly don't get is plausibility. And one way to see that you don't get plausibility is to think about the character of Marinelle. Um, Marinelle, I'll just say this for now, um, Marinelle is Britta Mart's antagonist, and um, Britta Mart wounds him badly, and when we first read that, we're supposed to think, good, that's a good thing, um, because he's obviously a bad guy, but he's not a bad guy. And it turns out that far from being a bad guy, um, he's really important to the story of the good guys. Um, Florimel is in love with. Well, spoiler, but yes, <laughs> yeah, Florimel is in love with Marin. Yeah, but um, no, 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 leave it, leave it. We'll get, we'll get to it. For the no spoil, no more spoilers okay. about Florimel and Marinel. Um, but there's a huge plot inconsistency. Let's just say that there's a gigantic plot inconsistency in the story of Florimel and Marinel, and um, yet. That plotted consistency. What I'll say, since since you already said that she's in love with him, is the only marriage in the Fairy Queen is the one between Florimel and Marinelle. It doesn't occur till Book Five, um, but they do get married in Book Five, and it's the only marriage in the Fairy Queen. Um, so uh, let's go back now, just to the beginning of Book One, 
Um, and we're, we'll, uh, there, there are a couple of things I want to draw your attention to, but the first is just to ask what we were talking about last time. Why do Guyana and Britomart fight when we're expecting, you know, if we think we, we have Spencer's number, if we think we got the digits, we would expect that um, it would be like Guyon and Red Cross. That is, that they would almost fight, but then they would say, no, no, we are both on the side of virtue, I for chastity and thou for temperance, we must not fight. But they do fight, and not only do they fight, but Guyon goes nuts. The description is that Guyon was just filled with rage against Bruno Everyone had to lie to him to pacify him. Yeah, this is, um, so book three, canto one, um, um, 11. Yeah, okay. sorry, I was just uh, looking at the proem again. Um, uh, the end of the, pro- the proem is, but let that same delicious poet lend a little leave unto a rustic muse, that is the, the delicious poet is Raleigh, let him lend a little leave unto a rustic muse to sing his mistress praise, that is um, Cynthia's or the moon's or Queen Elizabeth's, and let him mend, if aught amiss her liking may abuse. May let his fair Cynthia refuse in mirrors, and hang on to that word mirror, obviously, in mirrors more than one herself to see. But either Gloriana let her choose, or in Belphoebe fashioned to be. In the one her rule, in the other her rare chastity. So Belphoebe represents Queen Elizabeth's chastity, and Gloriana represents her um, wise and wonderful rule. Okay, so now we get to Book Three, Canto One, uh, stanza eleven. Um, actually, no, even before that. Um, so Guyon um, is um, going with Arthur, and um, then they see another knight that towards them pricked fair at um, Canto Four, stand, uh, line two. I mean, stanza four, line two. And, beside, and him beside an aged squire there rode that seemed to couch under a shield three square. Um, and so he prepares himself um, to fight, that knight does, which seeing good Sir Guyon dear besought the prince of grace to let him run that turn. He granted, then the fairy quickly wrought his poignant spear and sharply began to spurn his foamy steed whose fiery feet did burn the verdant grass as he thereon did tread. Nay, did the other back his foot return, but fiercely forward came and came without in dread and bent his dreadful spear against the other's head. They'd been a met, and both their points <clears throat> arrived, but Guyon drove so furious and fell. So Guyon has just lost it. Mr. Temperance has lost it. Sir Temperance drove so furious and fell that seemed both shield and plate it would have rived. Nadless, it bore his foe not from his cell, his, his saddle, but made him stagger as he were not well. But Guyon's self, ere well, he was aware, nigh a spear's length behind his crouper fell. Yet in his fall so well himself he bare that mischievous mischance his life and limbs did spare, but still he feels great shame and sorrow. And then Spencer says, if you knew that you'd been defeated by a woman, this is in stanza eight, um, boy, would you be ashamed of yourself, but weenest thou what white thee overthrew, much greater grief and shamefuler regret for thy had fortune, hard fortune than thou wouldst renew, that of a single damsel thou, that of a single damsel thou wert met on equal plane, and there so hard beset, 
even the famous Britomart it was whom Strange Adventure did from Britain fet, that is fetch. Um, so she's from Britain. We're not in Britain in the Fairy Queen, but she has come from Britain to seek her lover, love far sought, alas, whose image she had seen in Venus looking glass. Um, so now we get the first hint that she's looking for someone she's seen in a mirror, something like this, you'll know, happens lots in mythology. Um, it's the magic flute is another version of it. Um, but so she's, she's seen an image of the person that she is to marry, and we're going to find out more about that later. But okay, um, interpret me an interpretation. Allegorize for me an allegory. Why do Guyon and Britomart fight? Why does Britomart defeat Guyon? What does that mean allegorically? Well, just do the one-to-one -one correspondence. Chastity always overthrows temperance. Okay, chastity defeats temperance. Why? Because Why would chastity and temperance fight each other to begin with? Because temperance is the middle way, but chastity is the good extreme. Okay, so temperance is in conflict with chastity. That's the first thing to see allegorically. At least at the beginning of book three is that there is a conflict. Literally, there's a conflict between... Te well, literally. But literally, there's a conflict between temperance and chastity. There was not a conflict between temperance and holiness. That was a conflict avoided. It turns out they're not in conflict with each other. But at the beginning of book three, temperance and chastity are in conflict with each other. Um, and again, uh, someone else, why is there, why would there be a conflict, an actual conflict, not a possible, but an actual conflict between temperance and chastity? Temperance is a mediating position. Right. So it would be between two extremes, and chastity is not mediating at all. It's quite far on one side, complete withholding. Yeah, you know that Cole Porter song, Always True to You in My Fashion? <laughs> um, that, would be, um, that would be temperate chastity. I'm reasonably chaste. Um, I'm arguably chaste, is what she's saying in the Cole Porter song. Um, uh, she doesn't make the team, as she puts it. Um, there are a lot of dirty, dirty, dirty lines in that song. Um, yeah, it's a totally great song. Um... But it's, you can't call it chastity, at least that's what Britomart is saying, if what you're saying is, you know, I'm being, um, eh, yeah, I'm being, I'm being, I'm, you know, I like temperance, I'm being, um, I'm being uh, pretty chaste, yeah, yeah, I'm chaste. Um, that's, that's not what you want to say to your boyfriend or girlfriend, uh, at least that's not what they want to hear. Um, is that you went off to college and you acted fairly chaste. Um, so chastity, in a sense, if chastity is a virtue, it seems at first as though it cannot possibly harmonize with temperance. Temperance is a virtue, and we already looked at this in terms of temperance, that, that temperance... Um, as a virtue has to be solid, has to, that, that it's the very nature of virtue to, um, 
not bargain or compromise, that the very idea of virtue is to be uncompromising, and yet temperance is in a way the hardest of all virtues because it's about finding a middle which is not a compromise. And that is what um, Guyon fails to do for a long time. He's sort of intemperately uncompromising. But maybe, maybe not, but let's say, okay, we're in a new book, so let's, let's say, well, at least he did compromise with Red Cross, or he did come to, come to a temperate arrangement with Red Cross, because it turned out that they were on the same side of things. So he didn't compromise with Red Cross, but they came to a harmony. Um, and harmony is the word that's used over and over in book two. In book three, the question is, can you um, compromise with chastity? Can Britomart be a little pregnant? Um, to use the, the, the um, recent terminology for this. And it seems like, no, you can't. And so that if temp so if so if temperance is going against chastity, and if temperance really goes nuts trying to defeat chastity, um, you know it's basically, come on, it's just for one night. Your boyfriend never needs to find out. It's not a big deal. It's not like I'm asking you to dump him. You know that's one way of reading the allegory here. Um, Britomart's response is no, it doesn't matter. I'm not gonna quote Stephen Stills and love the one I'm with. Um, it doesn't matter that it's just for one night. Chastity is chastity. And, um, and Guyon works really hard, but he gets defeated um, and thrown off his horse um, almost a spear's length away. So we need to say nothing about that spear or what a spear's length might mean in this context. Um, but he's, he's thrown from his horse. Um, then where do they go? What happens next? They make peace. They make peace, right. And then just, just plot summarize till we get to the next uh, major event. Where do they, they end up? They go into the woods. Yeah. Um, at which point they spy a woman running by the <clears throat> Tinius chasing after her, and then Arthur and Guyon in attempts to win some sort of gratitude from this most beautiful lady. Mm -hmm. Chase after, and okay. Mother Mark does not. Right. So where does she go? Uh, she goes off to I think it's like the the castle of joy. The castle joyous, yes. Castle joy, uh, where? So what kind of joy is this going to be in a book about chastity? Licentiousness. Yeah. Um, if you've taken French, you may know that the French word, does, does anyone know um, what the French word joui, which J-O-U-I-R, which means to take joy in, but it's actually got a stronger meaning in French? You mean to have an orgasm? Yes. Yeah, that's, that's not just um, translators of Bart who say that. Um, it just means that in French. Um, it meant the same thing. It had the same connotation in English in the 16th century. That is, to joy um, was one euphemism for having an orgasm. So the castle joyous is um, it's a much stronger and somewhat more shocking name for a castle um, than you would know in the 21st century. Um, it's the place for sex, the castle joyous is. 
um, which of course is where the Knight of Chastity is going to first be tested. Um, so if you go now to book one, let's say stanza, um, uh, oh, where does it start? Um, so Britta Mart, um, this is at stanza 19, she wouldn't lightly chase ladies' love. The whilst fair Britomart, whose constant mind would not so lightly follow beauty's chase, nor wrecked, nay wrecked of ladies' love, did stay behind. So, yeah, Britomart doesn't chase Florimel, unlike Arthur and Guyon, partly because she's not attracted to Florimel. That, at least, is, um, uh, she's, she's chased, but also she's just not that attracted to Florimel because she's heterosexual. Although there is something odd about her falling in love with a mirror image. Um, so it's almost as though Spencer is raising that issue in order, or raising that issue by saying she's not interested in women um, because she is herself a woman. And yet the Castle Joyous is, is going to be about women interested in her. Um, and so that question, which we already saw in book two, one of the things that, one of the mildly pornographic scenes in The Bower of Bliss are um, the two girls swimming um, in the pool that Guyon and the Palmer try not to look at. Um, and they're just producing a kind of, a kind of NC-17 movie um, for Guyon and the Palmer, but they look away. Um, now we get the Castle Joyous. Britomart is an interest in ladies' love. Um, so she gets to the castle, and what does she see there? Six knights doing what? Attacking Yes, attacking who? Red Cross. Attacking Red Cross. So you might say to yourself, Red Cross, what are you doing there? Um, what happened to Una? Why are you finding yourself beset by the Castle Joyous now? But at least Red Cross is kind of fighting against them, although later it, it's an amazing um, uh, story, or it's an amazing competition. So what happens? You get to the Castle Joyous, and what happens? What's the rules? What are the rules, as we say in modern English? I was just trying to give you a 16th century version or something. What are the rules of the Castle Joyous? You have to call the lady of the castle. You have to make her your lady, or you have to... The, yeah, or you have to say that she's better than your lady. Okay, but so you fight these six knights, and what happens if you lose? Right. So basically, you have to have sex with with the lady in the castle. What happens if you win? You What's the prize? The love. It's a it's a no win situation. You get the same. well. It's a no lose situation. <laughs> is is how they're presenting it. <laughs> so if the six knights defeat you, then you have to have sex with the lady. Um, if you defeat the six knights, the prize is you get to have sex with the lady. Um, so it's it's um, that's a good depiction of seduction. Um, that's a good depiction, you could say, of sweet, reluctant, amorous delay. Do you remember the names of the six knights? Mm. Anyone besides Vino? Vino has an exam on this in a couple of months, so she'd better. <laughs> um, do you remember the names of any of the knights? Doubt. Um, doubt. Is that not I don't think so. No. The first one is named Gardante. Which means looking. Looking good. Uh, next one, anyone? Parlante. Parlante, which means talking. Talking, right? The next one. Yocante. 
Yeah. Is that the next one? Yeah. Jocante, which you have means. To joke before yeah. You kiss. Yeah, joking around. Mm -hmm. The next one. Bachiante. Bachiante, which means. What is it? Kiss. Kissing. Yes. The next one is. Bacante, which means. Revelry. Yeah, drinking. <laughs> and the last one is. Which means. What do you think it means? All night long. Yeah, spending the night. It, it, it means knighting without a K. Um, so the, and the, the pinnacle of which is, which is the joy. Yeah, right, is the joy of the cash, castle joyous. Um, yeah, so here what you get is, the, is a six-step program for seduction. First you look, then you talk, then you flirt, then you kiss. Then to get beyond first base, you start drinking. And then you spend the night. So that's who those six nights represent. Um, Britomart, um, what happens to Britomart? Why does she run out of the castle? Because the lady tries to sleep with her. Because the lady tries <laughs> to sleep with her. Yep. Britomart won't take off her armor, but who does take off his armor? Red Cross. Red Cross. He's always doing that. <laughs> it's not over at the end of book one. But Red Cross finally decides, um, okay, fine, he'll go with Britomart. Um, and Britomart fights against the six knights, and what happens to her? She wins, but what happens in the course of winning? She gets struck by an arrow. Yeah, she's wounded. By whom? Do you remember? Gardante. Yes, by Gardante. Um, by the first of the six steps. So that's, it's, it's probably better that she gets wounded by Gardante than by Noctante, which would be like straight into bed without any preliminaries. Um, <laughs> but it's, it's allegorical because she's already been wounded by Gardante. How's she already been wounded by Gardante? Just seeing Artigal in the mirror. Yes. So the one wound that she's already suffered to her chastity is we will now say, because it's going to matter later, I can't justify this yet, but those of you who finished book three will know this is true, she's wounded by looking, and that's going to turn out to be wounded by voyeurism. That is just looking. She sees Artigal in the mirror. She sees some version of her reflection in the mirror. Um, and that part, she's wounded by looking. Um, that's the only wound she's undergone. So she hasn't been kissing, she hasn't been drinking, she hasn't been talking, she hasn't been joking, um, she hasn't been, whatever, spending the night. Um, in fact, she very much doesn't spend the night. She leaves the castle. Um, but looking that, that far, she's gone. Um, okay, so finish book three. Does anyone have the syllabus with them? Um, I gave us more time on book three, but I'm, I just can't remember how far... Yeah, just what does it say? Okay, yeah, let me see it. Um, so, yeah, we are supposed to, huh, yeah, I guess we're supposed to start book four today. Happy Valentine's Day, by the way, everyone. Oh, yeah. Um, but we do have this catch-up week. So why don't we say finish book three? We're, we're going to spend the rest of the week on book three, but you should try to really finish it by Wednesday so that we can be talking about um, the whole thing. So finish book three by Wednesday. We won't uh, be that far behind if you do it. And we'll certainly use the whole of the catch-up week um, as we talk about it. Um, all right. Emily, 
trying and thinking that Buddha myself is a is a. Sorry, say it again. Is a figure. Sorry. Someone speak. <laughs> I just wanted to ask: Is the quiz on Wednesday? Um, do you want the quiz Wednesday or Thursday? Thursday. Okay, the quiz is Thursday. I should I should just ask you and then Would make it Wednesday. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Really, don't we have homework? Thinking that Rachel herself is a creation for somebody else, just as article is. It's.